Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. This episode is brought to you by Helper. Are you in search for the perfect health insurance? Well, look no farther because they are the ultimate platform that revolutionizes the way that you find, enroll, and manage your health coverage. HealthBird offers an innovative solution that is tailored just for you. They have a lightning fast search engine that you can effortlessly compare health insurance quotes in milliseconds. There's no more tedious hours of browsing endless websites or spending hours on the phone with insurance agents. They offer a user-friendly app available on iOS and Android, which puts the power of managing your health insurance right at your fingertips. So again, you know, don't let the complexity of health insurance overwhelm you. Join Helper community and experience a seamless, intuitive platform that puts you in control. So get a quote today at healthbird.com forward slash dealmakers. This episode is brought to you by Bupos. Attention entrepreneurs, are you ready to take your business aspirations to new heights? Allow me to introduce you to Bupos, the ultimate solution for finding and funding your SaaS and subscription-based business acquisitions. With Bupos, you'll experience a seamless and worry-free process. They offer flexible funding and require absolutely no personal guarantee. I mean, again, you can go there, you can explore over a thousand opportunities pre-approved for financing, ensuring that you invest in a business with true profit potential. Bupos has got you covered. Their team actually provides one-on-one advisory support to help you making informed decisions. And on Bupos, you gotta remember, they've already approved over 700 million in funding and they've written over 3,000 businesses, finance hundreds of successful business acquisitions and have an impressive 4.7 out of five stars on Trustpilot. So you should go to bupos.com forward slash dealmakers, and that is bupos as B-O-O-P-O-S dot com forward slash dealmakers. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a very exciting founder, serial founder. You know, he's done it multiple times. You know, the last one he actually sold the company to Google. So uh, really amazing stuff. Uh, and uh, yeah, so we're going to be learning about the journey, you know, with each one of those companies, also about a book that he published as well. And we're going to be uh, learning about all the good stuff that we like to hear, especially when it comes to building, scaling, financing, and exiting. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Dan Shapiro. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Alejandro. It is a pleasure to be here. So Dan, so tell us about life growing up, because you are the child of two professors uh, growing up in, in North Dakota. How was life? Uh, you know, give us a walk through memory lane so that we can get to know you a little bit. Yeah, my parents were uh, uh, both professors, speech and communications and uh, computer science. My dad, computer science, mom, speech and communications. They collaborated on research on computer-mediated communications. So they were some of the first folks to explore what it was like to work together over email. And until I was 12, we lived in Fargo. So uh, there were three of us. My brothers became uh, a, a uh, economist at UC Berkeley, my youngest brother, my middle brother's the host of All Things Considered on NPR. And so one took after dad on the math side, one took after mom on the communication side. I kind of wound up in the middle doing tech startups and all that. But uh, moved to Portland when I was 12 and uh, discovered love in science and engineering and wound up working at the Oregon Museum of Science and Industry, somewhat presciently working in the holography lab, using lasers to make amazing designs for 
the guests at the uh, the Museum and Science Center. So then tell us about, you know, also, I mean, you go, you go to school, you know, uh, for engineers. And then right after that, you know, rather than starting your own thing, you know, because obviously that happened a little bit later, you decided to go into corporate. You know, you obviously worked at really big companies like Microsoft, which I think that that obviously gives you the idea of uh, what it would look like if you would build something into, you know, something perhaps, you know, meaningful. But basically, I mean, you you did a little bit of, uh, of both, you know, not only the corporate side, but then also getting to learn the uh, smaller side of things, you know, perhaps, you know, with the startups of some of your friends before you actually went at it on your own. Uh, what what were some of the things that you felt or that perhaps you wanted to learn or, 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 or the sequence of events that needed to happen for you to become an entrepreneur? So I got an engineering degree at Harvey Mudd. And Harvey Mudd is interesting because they don't let you specialize. So I couldn't be an electrical and mechanical, had to do a little bit of everything, although I really loved electrical and mechanical. And uh, all the interviewers came around from all the usual, uh, the usual suspects. And I wasn't planning on interviewing at Microsoft because I wanted to do hardware. But a friend of my dad said, no, no, you got to have him go interview for Microsoft. So I went in, I figured it was a practice interview and I fell in love. It was a job as a program manager on the Windows team working to deliver Windows 98, which was going to go out to tens, hundreds of millions of people. And I was going to get to help guide a piece of it. And I wound up working there for five years, um, worked on things like the control panel in Windows XP and uh, uh, video drivers and storage uh, components in Windows 2000, got to present to Bill and Steve and was there early enough that I could see a little bit. It looked like a, a company that had grown up rather than a company that was huge and had always been huge and would always be huge. And I could see those glimmerings, like the founders were still there and I could still see them involved, which really helped plant some seeds for how I think about building and leading and growing and scaling a company. And then after about five years, I had some friends who went to go to a startup and I was entranced by this idea of going and creating our own Microsoft. So I went to go lead product management for a company that was building the first Linux-based cell phone. So imagine the Android business plan, except before the Android business plan was a good idea. In 2002, we forked Red Hat Linux, built our own apps and dialers and everything from scratch and created this bizarre banana-shaped phone for teenagers in the pre-smartphone era that used Android or used Linux as the underlying operating system and reinvented everything that it meant to have a phone. Company did okay. It sold for $50 million. It raised about $50 million. So eh, that was the thing. But I had so been bitten by that experience of building companies. And the rest of my career, I moved in and out. As I, you know, took a, took a, after that company um, wrapped up, I took a, a job at Real Networks to pay the bills where I got to run the games team. And, you know, I would, building games was always a dream of mine. So I was excited to get to do that for a while. But then I had to go back and start my own company. So, you know, sold a company to Google, worked at Google for a while. They both have their benefits. And it is, it is fun and challenging to be at a big company. You learn all sorts of interesting things. But there's also a lot you learn that you have to unlearn when you go into the startup world, because the challenges are very different. The opportunities are different. And the way that you think about them is so profoundly change. One of the things I was talking about in my book is in a big company, you think about ROI. That is, if I put in a dollar, can I get a dollar fifty back? Can I get a dollar twenty-five? Can I get a dollar seventy-five? And to start up, what you think about is I have one dollar. Where do I put it? Resources are hard limited and it doesn't matter how big the opportunity is because you can only 
you're dominated not by cost, but by opportunity cost. And so the thing you can afford to do is one thing and you must pick it wisely. And it's such a different approach. It's such a different challenge to say, like, this degree of focus is required that, you know, in companies with more resources, it isn't. You have to do one thing and make it work instead of trying lots of things and, and, and uh, you know, sort of pushing them all forward because they all might deliver something. So then in your case, you know, when, when you were, you know, experiencing, let's say, Microsoft and like you said, pitching to Bill and Steve, and then from there you move into Wild Seed, you know, helping a friend and then also into video games. At what point, you know, does Ontella, which became your first uh, company, you know, come knocking, you know, the opportunity and, and why did you feel like it was time, you know, to do something of your own? I was uh, working a day job at Real Networks, and it was an interesting job, and everybody there was putting in, let's say, 45-hour work, work week. There were not people who are, you know, going around the clock, but that's kind of how I, I wired, and particularly those young and youthful days, because we're now talking about, oh gosh, 15, almost 20 years ago. Uh, and so I'd put in a 45-hour work week, and then I'd come around and spend another 20-plus hours going and coming up with what I was going to do and what I wanted to do next. I found uh, an old friend who was excited about startups as well. We brainstormed ideas and we had this notion of cloud services for what were then called camera phones. Because in the pre-smartphone era, you had the, you know, your Motorola Razor could take a picture, but it was trapped inside the camera. Some of you may remember, some of the gray hairs among us may remember, like you couldn't trade in your phone because you'd lose all your pictures. So they'd have to like cable it up to get it over to the new one. So cloud services that could wirelessly sync with phones were brand new. We basically invented the category, patented some of the earliest pieces in there, and created this notion that your phone was connected to the cloud and to PCs, and uh, raised a bunch of money, uh, over 40 million in total, had partnership with major carriers and rolled this out. A lot of disruption when iPhone came out, as you might imagine. But right around that time, found uh, a deal with our largest partner, a company called Photobucket, that was a wholly owned subsidiary of Fox Interactive, and found a deal to go put the companies together um, and have shared resources to go after mobile and cloud imaging at the same time, which was the time when I found a way to step out of my full-time role as CEO, move into an advisor and board member, and go move on to what I was excited about next. So what was that the next thing, Spark by? Tell us about it. You know, how, how did this come about? So uh, I had so many ideas I wanted to pursue. I, I narrowed it down to four good ideas and one dumb one. And, uh, and I was thinking about these and I decided I was going to fly down to the Bay Area. I'm up, I'm up in Seattle, fly down to the Bay Area, meet with a host of VCs that I knew and just bounce ideas off of them. Um, on the way down, I got bumped into first class. And I have a rule. I hate talking to people on an airplane. But if I get bumped into first class, or if I'm flying to the Bay Area, I just force myself to say hello. And this was both. So I forced myself to say hello to the guy next to me and said, what are you, you, know, what are you doing? And I explained I was working on new ideas. And he said he worked for Google and he was curious. And so I, I explained briefly the four, uh, the four ideas. And he was like, that's kind of interesting. And I was like, I have this one dumb one. He said, what's that? And I told him the dumb one. And he said, oh, my gosh, if you do that, call me because that's amazing. I was like, huh, took his card. Last I thought about it, uh, went down, talked to all these investors, and they all kind of had the same reaction, which was kind of like the dumb one. The dumb one was I needed to buy a new uh, laptop, and I was buying a Windows laptop because I was 
still on the Microsoft train back then, hadn't, hadn't cleared it for my system. And there are all these different laptops, and there was no data feed, no structured data of what was in them. Same problem existed for TVs and uh, lots of other consumer electronics. So the idea was I'd sort of hacked together a thing where I, I paid a bunch of folks in emerging markets to go clean up these dirty marketing data feeds from all these companies, put it into a database, and then had a beautiful UI on top of it that lets you say, I want a fast laptop with Bluetooth that weighs less than five pounds. And it could go figure out exactly what met both a qualitative like fast and quantitative like less than five pounds meant and give you a list of the outputs. This is around the time a friend of mine was founding, co-founding Wirecutter. So like, how do you go by and find things was a big piece of this. So after like basically everybody telling me my dumb idea was the good one, built this company around it about building the data feed, building the beautiful front end. And then we launched on TechCrunch and uh, within uh, an hour of the launch, that same guy from the airplane said, we need to get together and have coffee. I saw you just launched that thing. I'd totally forgotten about him. He was the guy who wound up orchestrating the purchase of the company by Google. Six months, almost the day after the company was founded. Wow. And obviously, you you talk about this in detail in your book, just so that the people that uh, that are listening, you know, get it. What 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 is the title of your book? Uh, it's Hot Seat: The Startup CEO Guidebook by Dan Shapiro. And one of the reasons I wanted to write it was because I wanted to talk about what really happens during M and I've had so many people tell me so many parts of the startup experience, but like the real experience of M and was kind of shrouded in mystery and NDAs. And by writing a book, I could write it all down and I could get Google to sign off on it and say, yes, it's okay for you to publish this. So I knew I could publish it without risking that I was sharing something that you know they would be upset about to, to come back. And it's really a unique world. And it's a tricky world because in M&A, you're often uh, a founder who's doing it for the first time ever, negotiating with somebody who's done it a million times before. And unlike, you know, raising a financing round, which has the same dynamic, people haven't written about it. Like, I learned how financing rounds work by reading uh, Venture Deals, written by Brad Felt, in when it was first published in like 2003, 2004. 20 years later, Brad's on my board. So, you know, the world is long, and I actually got to negotiate against him using his own advice. But that book didn't exist for startups and really still doesn't when it comes to M&A and what that's like. When you are you are negotiating for your life and the life of your company. So then, so then, what happens really in, in the M and A, you know, uh, process? I mean, give us what you know, perhaps like an insider scoop, and obviously on what you're allowed to say, on what went down, you know, during that moment where you received the contact, you know, from this person that you had met, you know, on the airplane from from Google to the moment that the deal is closed. He called me up and said, "Let's have coffee," and I uh, said, "Sure, no problem," and. While I was going to the Google headquarters in, in Seattle nearby to go have coffee with him, I scheduled coffee with a friend of mine whose company had been acquired by Google and uh, Jonathan Spasato. And I said, hey, Jonathan, you know, how's it going? Catch up. He's like, great. What are you here for? And I was like, oh, I'm meeting with uh, Matt Kleiner. And he said, oh, I don't mean to get you like, you know, all in a, in a knot. But coffee with Matt Kleiner was how the acquisition of my last startup started. <laughs> and up until that point, I did not know really what he did or what that was about. And I was like, oh, OK, interesting. And Matt was really intrigued by what we were doing and asked a bunch of questions and then said, I'd really like to have you talk to Scott Silver. And I said, oh, my gosh, I interviewed Scott Silver to be VP of engineering at my startup three years ago, loved him to bits. He took the job at Google instead. We kept in touch. I would love to talk to Scott Silver. It's been way too long. 
because uh, you never know when these relationships wind up coming around. And so I told Scott what we were working on, we brainstormed together, and then we wound up actually saying, okay, they said, we want to go make a bid. And I said, look, here's the thing. And this was one of the one of the things that uh, I, I got as advice, and I hardly recommend, which is I said, for you, this is one of a million things, one of a, a hundred things you're going to be doing, one of a million things Google's going to be doing. I don't, I don't have that kind of bandwidth. If I'm talking to you, I'm not talking to customers. I'm not talking to partners. I'm not talking to investors. I cannot afford to have a fun exploratory conversation, <laughs> or at least not much of one. And I can't afford for you to make me a nonsense deal that I look and say, no, you're, you're, you know, this is insulting. Let me get back to work. I just can't go through that whole process. So I need to, if we're going to explore this, I need to go into it with you knowing what my bottom line is from the start and knowing that you're not going to insult me or waste my time by coming in lower. And we need to mutually agree on how much of my and my team's time you're going to spend and on what that looks like. So you have to lay out a roadmap for me of what it looks like to get to a decision. And if we fall off that roadmap, then we agree that as soon as we fall off that roadmap, as soon as you say, I can't do it with this, I need another, you know, 10 hours of meeting or whatever, then we're going to part as friends. So we're going to figure out what it takes, be conservative, put more time in there than you need, because if we wind up needing more time, I'm just going to say, let's part as friends and pick this up later, because I don't have time, it'll, it'll derail my company and our chances to have this conversation. And that was really helpful, because many times, Google came back at some part and was like, we just need to do this extra thing. And I was like, okay, then we'll part as friends. And then we went back to the deal owner. And they're like, no, 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 we said we weren't going to do that. And then we came back and turned out we didn't have to do that thing and so on. And so that included things like postponing interviewing my team members to the very end because we knew that that wasn't going to, that was, uh, that was, I needed a number before we did that so that they weren't wasting time. I knew that that was going to distract them. And I mean, there were moments when I had to graciously talk about walking. Uh, Probably the most egregious and painful of those was uh, when we previously said the range is between X and Y. And I said, okay, then you can talk to my team. And we went and had my team do interviews. And then we came out and the deal owner, none of the two people I mentioned, but the person in M&A said, great news. We got approval from Larry. We can offer you a number that was below the bottom threshold. I said, I'm so sorry about the miscommunication here. I thought we were clear, but I think we're done. And my counterpart said, yep, I, Larry told me I had to make that offer. I'm sorry. Now let's talk about, let's talk about the offer that you can, that maybe you can accept. I'll tell you, my heart just dropped. Like when I heard, no, we're coming in and lowballing you anyway, I like every feeling, betrayal, anger, guilt, sadness, what did I do wrong and everything. And then it was like, nope, we just, we had to make the low ball offer. Now we can start to the real negotiation. I just, I didn't even know where to start, but, but we took that deal through to the end and wound up with something that would really work for me, would really work for the investors. And most importantly, would really work for the team. And I think the reason that happened was because one thing I told them at the very start that helped guide the negotiation from the very beginning. At the start, I said, look, I have a fiduciary obligation to the company and I have an obligation to the people who work for me. So there's an order of operations that I need to follow. And I recommend this to everybody who's engaging in an M&A discussion. First, we determine how much the company is worth. Second, we figure out the package for everybody at the company except me. Last, we figure out my package. 
I won't discuss any of those things out of order. And we started out and they're okay, sure, great, no problem. But one of the conversations that happened was, would have been very difficult if I didn't have that framework. The conversation was, they, right after we, we talked about the price, they said, uh, you know, here's the price for the company. And I said, I need it to be here. I've got, you need to get up to here in order for that to work. And they said, look, Dan, something for you to consider. We have a total budget for the deal. And if we put more budget into the company acquisition, that's going to be less for you. And I said, I'm going to remind you, I'm not going to talk about what I get. That's not on my list of things to concern until I have done my fiduciary obligation for my shareholders, maximize the value of the company. So this is the number we have to do. I said, okay. I mean, like that means we're going to have less in the package. Then when it came time for the, uh, for my team members, we started talking about vesting and they were only partially vested. And I said, they need to be fully accelerated and have a hundred percent of their ownership at exit. He said, we can't do that. It doesn't work in the package. And I said, well, time to be creative. He said, well, you're fully vested. What if we unvested you? So I wound up unvesting some of my ownership and having to earn it back over time so that they could be fully vested at the transaction. But from my perspective, that's, that's what you do as an ethical leader of the company. You figure out the value of the company, get the right package for the team. I did all right too, negotiating for myself. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieversen, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a Series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. I guess one thing, you know, that uh, comes to mind is what do you think allowed you to be completely unattached to the outcome of the deal, to be in a mindset where you could, you know, just be in a position of walking away at any moment? Because I think that that gave you leverage. I was not. <laughs> it would have given me a lot of leverage if I was able to do that. But you cannot help. And I, thankfully, I knew this going in. You cannot help but get sucked in. I have a lot of friends now who I know who are in M&A and who've been a part of M&A on both sides. 
And here's the playbook that most people won't say out loud. The playbook is you have a reluctant founder, CEO, whatever it is. You tell them that the company is worth an enormous amount of money, that they're going to have complete autonomy, that their budgets are going to get so much bigger and they're going to do everything they've ever dreamed of. And then they say, okay, all right, I guess we'll talk. That sounds pretty good. And then you have a long drawn out process and every step along the process, they get more and more invested in the sunk cost of having spent time with you. And in every moment along the process, you lower their expectations a little and a little and a little until at the end of the process, their company's low on cash because they haven't been paying attention, mining the bank, they have been pursuing other approaches. They're completely obsessed with the payout and what's going to happen at the end. And they can only imagine themselves doing that. They can't imagine going back and running the company's independent. And you've dragged the price way down from where it was before. Now time is on your side because every moment that you wait, the company's in jeopardy. The, the leadership team is desperate to make the deal go through or else they look stupid. And all the leverage is in the company side. So I tied my own hands. I said, here's the amount of time we're going to invest no more. Here's the walkaway price and no more. And for me, it was easier to hold to those numbers and have those be sincere, which they were, than it was to just play it as you go. There's a research study, and as the child of two professors, you can imagine, I do love my research studies, where there were two negotiations. In the first negotiation, people talked about their bottom line, worst case, walkaway number. And in the second one, they didn't. And Talking about your bottom line walk away number made you much more likely to get it, but it also made you much less likely to do worse. So there is a risk and a benefit to doing that. By anchoring yourself to a number, you can prevent catastrophe where you drop below that number, but you also lose some upside and some ability to go beyond it. And it's one of those trade-offs going in. Are you trying to make it as big as possible, recognizing that you may fall far from grace? Or are you going for an outcome? You've set that outcome in advance. You're driving for that outcome. And if it isn't, you walk away. So no, I got totally emotionally invested along. And I knew enough about myself to know that was going to happen, to have the backup plan, to have the board keeping me honest and saying like, we are evaluating you by whether you make the company successful, not by whether you sell the company, even though we're supportive of selling it, that's the right outcome. And, and kept that balance forced on myself because I am not strong enough to do what you just described. I am only counseled well enough to know that it's a risk. And uh, you know, what was the story of the sirens? What did you do? Did you resist the call of the sirens? No, he had himself lashed to the mast. <laughs> that, yeah. was, that was what I attempted to do. Unbelievable, Dan. Thank you so much for sharing this. Now, in your case, you know, after the transaction was done, as you said, you know, you went into Google, you did the vesting as and resting, as some people would call it, you know, probably there was no resting. But, you know, also what you did is right after this, you started Robot Turtles, which was a solo uh, founder, you know, uh, person operation. So what were you guys doing there? And it was a very interesting licensing deal that you guys, you know, ended up uh, doing. So, so tell us about this. Uh, what happened there? Yeah, Robot Turtles was just a one-person adventure. I had been um, helping a friend pitch a TV show, and the TV show was a cross between um, uh, Shark Tank and um, Kickstarter. That's the idea. And so I said, "Oh gosh, it's research for this. I'm going to uh, I'm going to go launch a Kickstarter. I think that'd be fun." At the same time, I'd been playing around with this board game with my kids. Uh, my twins were then four. Now 
and during high school at 14. Uh, but at the time, they were four years old. And it was this board game that teaches programming principles, like the very basics to kids before they even know how to read. We had so much fun with it. And I thought it would be great to deliver this to the world. So I decided to be an amateur board game designer and put this together, put it on Kickstarter, totally blew up. It was one of the earliest STEM board games um, for, for young audiences. In fact, probably the first. And uh, for this preschool age, and uh, wound up selling, it was most backed board game in Kickstarter history at the time. So I uh, decided I was going to lean all in. I'd done this while I was on a short leave of absence from Google. And I, you know, decided to make it my full time gig. So I left Google and spent a year as a one person board game company had a couple of contractors, designers, um, uh, weirdly, a uh, my best friend from junior high school had been promoted through the ranks at Pixar and wound up uh, co-directing several of the recent Pixar movies, ran into him at a high school reunion, and he like said, oh, wait, let me help you with the eyes and like did a quick redesign of some of the characters. So I got some really great help along the way. Um, and uh, another friend of mine, uh, Alan Lee, who's the founder of Exploding Kittens, but wasn't at the time, now one of the largest board game companies in the world, back then just a, a, an amazing digital game designer helped me a little bit with that. So I, I got some great help. But at the end of the day, I was making boxes of cardboard and shipping them all around the country. And it was amazing. And it was fun. And as part of that experience, I wound up to prototype these with a an industrial carbon dioxide cutting laser imported directly from a factory in China, installed in my garage, which was totally madcap. My very patient wife, helped me crowbar the wooden crate open and get this thing installed. It was terrible. It took me weeks to get it working and figure out the software and the hardware and get it aligned and service it all the time. But there was this magic moment when I would push a button and something beautiful would come out the other side. I mentioned before that when I was between jobs, I went and pitched a bunch of ideas to a bunch of different people. And at this point, I was still working on finishing up Robot Turtles, but I started inviting a cavalcade of entrepreneurs and investors through my garage to go make stuff for them. So I was basically engraving logos and making corporate swag on this laser because I just thought it was so neat. And one of them, a friend of mine, Rick Hennessy, um, uh, engraved the logo for his new company on his laptop. And he said, oh, you should meet my, the founder of my first company. He hired me, uh, a guy named Mark Goslin. He loves hardware. So we had lunch and uh, Mark's a very quiet person. And uh, so Rick introduced us. I'd met him once before years ago. So reintroduced us <clears throat> and Mark said, you should tell him about your idea. So I was like, laser technology is amazing. Do you know about it? And he's like, yes, I do. And I said, great. It could be a desktop tool that's available to anyone and empower anyone to create anything. And it was more eloquent than that. And Mark sat quietly for a long time. And he looked at Rick and said, Rick, it's been a year since we sold the company. He just had a $110 million exit. I didn't tell you what I've been working on since then. And Rick's like, no, Mark, you're a mystery shrouded in enigma. I don't know what you've been working on. So, so, and I was like, all bite. What have you been working on since then? He's like, well, I built a combination CNC milling machine, plasma torch, 3D printer, and laser cutter in my garage. And I said, built like from a kit? And he said, no. Then another long silence, and he said, yeah, we could build a desktop laser, and that would be pretty incredible. That's how Glowforge was born. Wow. So then, so then for the people that are listening, you know, to get it, what ended up being the business model of Glowforge? How, how are you guys making money? So we launched with the most, uh, uh, the, the biggest crowdfunding campaign, 30-day crowdfunding campaign for anything ever. 
sold over $27 million worth of lasers in a month. And that was the, the early version of the Glowforge uh, uh, product that you see behind me. This is the Glowforge Pro. It is a desktop laser that lets you create truly beautiful things really quickly at the push of a button. So you can describe to the AI the idea of a keychain, and it will go and produce the keychain that you designed with, you know, in about two minutes with a click. Um, you can find a an image from the Library of Congress and drop it on a piece of leather and create a mouse pad. This is the uh, an old map from the city of Seattle that I use for my mouse pad. Wow! You can even uh, take a design from our catalog and in about 13 minutes, print all the pieces to create a beautiful leather wallet that looks like something you'd, you'd buy at the store or have custom made for you on Etsy. And it's incredibly simple and incredibly fast. More recently, we've taken all this, shrunk the size and shrunk the price with a launch just last month of the Glowforge Aura, a beautiful, small, portable version that starts at $1,200, is just as easy to use, can still choose from millions of designs and uh, uh, images and fonts and so on, and uh, easy to use, but now sold at Michael's and uh, Joanne craft stores around the world, uh, Amazon, and directly from us at a new and even more affordable price point. Slower and smaller, but uh, way more accessible to the average crafter at home. That's amazing. Now, you guys have raised quite a bit of money for this. How much capital have you guys raised to date for Glowforge? Over $100 million. Uh, I don't think we've updated the running total recently, but it's been an incredible experience where I've gotten to work with some really fantastic investors. Uh, True Ventures, who's had enormous success in hardware over the years. Revolution out of DC. Um, DFJ Growth, who uh, the, our board member, Barry, was bought a Glowforge in 2018. It's been printing since, and I finally got him into the company last year. And our first and uh, foundational investor, Foundry Group, where Brad Feld, whose book I read in 2004, who I idolized, and who, incidentally, I pitched every single one of my companies, uh, came on as our first outside board member and is one of my great mentors, somebody I talk to at least once a week and sometimes once a day. That's incredible. That's incredible. Now, obviously, you know, like to all those investors for raising this money, you know, there's a vision that you share with them. So I guess in that regard, if you were to go to sleep tonight, Dan, and you wake up in a world where the vision of Glowforge is fully realized. What does that world look like? Yeah, I sometimes say I, I have to put on my crazy founder hat. <laughs> and when I do, I say, I tell folks about this walk that Mark and I went on in the fall of 2014 before we decided to found the company. And I don't remember which one of us said, I don't really want to build another Black & Decker not really interested in building a tool company for people who use tools. Mark and I, our lives have been defined by the gift of creation, the ability to make things for both of us. And that is a superpower that has enabled so many of the great things that happen to us. But when we think about it, that shouldn't be something unusual. That shouldn't be something special. We are homo sapiens. We are the tool users. We are defined by our ability to create things. And it is only a quirk of technology in the past few hundred years that that changed. A few hundred years ago, if you wanted something, you made it yourself or in your community. And 
It is technology that said, no, 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 you're not doing that anymore. Things are now made halfway around the world and put on container ships and driven in trucks to distribution centers and, and, and delivered to your door, to your target store, or what have you. And that is odd in the scope of human experience because we are built to build. And Glowforge is about granting everybody the ability to create things. It is about the realization that with technology, it can be faster, cheaper, and better to build things where they're needed, when they're needed, and for the purpose that they're needed. That's what I'm excited about, empowering each and every one of us with the ability to create the things we want, the things we need, and the things that we imagine for the world around us. That's why ultimately, unlike the last companies, which were great businesses that I sold or licensed or wrapped up when their time had come, this feels like my life's work. I love that. Now, we're talking about the future here. I want to talk about the past, but doing it from a lens of reflection then. if uh, Let's say I was to put you into a time machine and I bring you back to... You know, perhaps that moment where you were still, you know, like working in video games and kind of like thinking about what you may do, you know, on your own, if you were to branch off as an entrepreneur, as a founder, if you were to have the opportunity of going back in time and being able to whisper to that younger Dan, one piece of advice before launching the business, what would that be and why, given what you know now? When I started on Tela, I pitched everything that moved. I'd heard all about fundraising, spent nine months trying to raise money for this company full time, nothing else, quit my job. At the end of the eighth month, I was nowhere better than when I started, except everybody I know I'd already pitched. It wasn't until the last pitch of the last possibility of the last place I could go that I got the first check that triggered the investment round. I swore to myself that when I cracked the nut, when I figured it out, I would write it down and I would share it with the world. I would not gatekeep. I would put that out there. And damn it, but I don't know what it is. Because when that happened, it was, I was randomly at a party in Barcelona at a wireless conference and ran into this guy who I'd been trying to get a meeting with, who'd been ignoring me and pretended I didn't know who he was and struck up a conversation. And he said, oh, what a coincidence. We're both in Seattle. We should get together. And like, that was the thing that made it work. It was, it was just beating my head against the wall until there was a hole. So what's my advice for myself? It feels like it's not working until it's working. It wow. is impossibly hard. And there is nothing that can be done about that. Some people are lucky and it gets easy. The rest of us work and work and work until we find something that works. And you have to love it. You have to love it enough for it to be worth it. I love that. So Dan, for the people that are listening, that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? Dan Shapiro on the site formerly known as Twitter. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, send me a note there. And uh, I'm Dan Shapiro at glowforge.com. Uh, so excited to get to talk about this stuff. Amazing. Well, hey, Dan, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us today. Thank you, Alejandro. It has been an honor. I appreciate it. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, 
whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.